Do you want to know a secret? We're working on a special project that's going to be revealed in the next few weeks. If you'd like to get an inside look and see some exclusive content, go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to our Patreon campaign. If you donate to our campaign, you will be able to access some exclusive content, some behind the scenes, planning documents, some photos, maybe some exclusive audio about this big event that we will be revealing in June. Again, go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and donate to our Patreon campaign. The digital disruption touched everything. didn't just touch television news. didn't just touch online news or print news or whatever you want to call it. It touched everything, including academia, and professors are actively seeking ways to engage their students differently. We're flipping classrooms. That's a, that's a common term now, and that's not just in the university setting, but in high schools and in elementary, middle, all the way through. Digital technology didn't just disrupt journalism. It disrupted everything, including academia. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Today on the phone, I'm talking to Karen Henderson, an assistant professor in broadcast and digital journalism at Syracuse University's Newhouse School. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, this is great. Uh, you and I met, we were on a panel at the Broadcast Educators Association conference in Las Vegas a few months ago, talking about audio storytelling for students. So how do you think that, that all went? Actually, I think that went really well. I was Glad to meet you yes. in person. I've heard your voice enough, <laughs> I think, but uh, I thought it was well attended. Yeah. Thanks, considered. Oh, thanks. And <laughs> well, it's hard with with conferences, right? They have a tendency to schedule four different interesting panels. That yeah. People have to make a decision about what they're going to go. Now, did you bring see in person? Well, after we did our presentation, you ran out and you did another presentation because you had, <laughs> you had, I guess, done a paper and you uh, presented it, but you were also were you won an award because of it. Is that what happened? That is all factual. Oh. <laughs> I, I, you can <laughs> confirm I, confirm my. my... <laughs> I'll, I'll fact check your your questions. Yes. No, I uh, I, I wrote a paper uh, along with a then PhD student, now doctoral. Um, or rather not doctoral candidate, a doctor. His name is uh, Sung Yoon Ri from Korea. And Sung Yoon and I, Dr. Ri and I, both worked on a paper that we called Who's in the Lead? And uh, the subtitle, because there always has to be a subtitle, is a, uh, a demographic analysis of leading local television news reporters across the top markets in the U.S., not exactly known in academia for exciting titles, I guess. No, but it, it was certainly descriptive. I, you know, I think they give credit for that, right? That if you, you write a title that's not particularly exciting, but informative. It sort of sets the tone. How long was this, this paper? I'm just curious. In terms of page length? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Well, <laughs> you really, you're, you're deeply interested in this, probably more than the people who read the paper. Let's see. Uh, it looks like it was probably about 20 pages. Okay. I like working from the, from the outside in. Okay. Now we know how long it is. Okay. But it, it was actually a really kind of an interesting subject, and, and I did go and listen to your presentation, and I was actually sort of intrigued about how you did your study. Now, first of all, your, your thesis was what? In this kind of research and content analysis, sometimes it's the case that you may grab a large data set, a collection of, of data, and 
dig into it from many different angles. So that is what I did in this case. One of the angles was uh, what led to this paper, which is to say that we were looking at close to a thousand news clips of leading of top 50 Nielsen ranked markets. So the top 200 stations in the country for local TV news. And we were looking at the demographics of the people presenting the lead stories in the newscasts. So in other words, stories that should in theory get the most attention, most eyeballs and are getting the most prestigious placement in the newscast. And we were curious among other things, but for this paper, who gets to present these prestigious placed news stories. So we looked at who in terms of gender, who in terms of race, who in terms of age get to be lead reporters for the day. Did you expect, you know, because you you go out there and like, okay, let's let's find this, you know, let's 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 suppose, see what this looks like, see what the information is going to tell us. What did you think? What sort of answers were you thinking you're going to get when you started out? We started out broad, which is what you should do. We were open to whatever the data was going to tell us, but we did have some expectations, which is to say that newsrooms are talking about diversifying their reporting staff. And I was curious, we were curious, if it was actually the case that in this most important position in the newscast being the first story, the one where you can anticipate people still are paying attention to what is going on, that there be a reflection of that desire to diversity in the newsroom, uh, not just in general numbers, but in the, in the most important story of the day, in the lead story. So what we were thinking about was uh, a man named Walter Lippmann, who was a a reporter long ago who wrote a, a good book called Public Opinion, and he talked about how news is like a window into society. This was years ago. By extension, academics have made the case that news is representative of the community, or it ought to be representative of the community. And so it's important to know who is in your local newsroom, and it's important because these are representations in your community. So we were looking at exactly that, who was who was representing our communities in these largest of, of markets in the country. So we looked like at gender, and we looked at race, and we looked at age, and we had an expectation that there be probably some pretty equal representation of gender, and we weren't really sure what we were going to get with race, and we weren't really sure what we were going to get with age, but we anticipated that there be far more white reporters, or at least appearing white, because we did not interview them, so we, we don't actually know. We were only going by appearance. So in terms of if race, we were thinking we would see more white faces than, than journalists of color, uh, and in terms of age, we figured we would see more people who appeared under the age of 40 than over the age of 40, because we also understood, both of us being former journalists, that uh, this is a image-conscious business and right. tends to hire young, pretty people. So 
yeah. we were curious what we would find. So we're talking about, if I remember correctly, it's the it's the evening news, not the not, actually not the evening news, the the late night news, either ten or eleven o'clock news. Is that correct? That's correct. So we not only were we looking at the largest markets in the country, but we made the case that we should look at the most expensive newscasts of the day, which in terms of how much they charge for advertising. So typically the late night newscast is the just barely more successful than the 6 p.m. newscast in a given market. And that's a point when the consumer is about to go to bed. They want to get the headlines. They want to know what the weather's going to be like the next day so they can have a good night's sleep and not have to worry about things. <laughs> They're going to be, go to bed, go to bed informed. So this first, that first story, that first five minutes on the news is kind of important because obviously we, we put the most important story at the beginning of the news, unless they tell us that there's something that's going to affect our children. And we're going to talk about it at, you know, 1055. Right. Which, Just uh, after the first commercial break. Yeah. Usually, yeah. Right? Yeah. Usually after the <laughs> something's going to kill you, we'll tell you about it after the break. So, I want to ask a couple of things. I want to ask how you how you can got, gathered your research, but let's just go ahead and jump, you know, cut to the chase. What were the 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 things that you discovered when you did this sort of uh, study? Findings first. All right, sure. let's let's talk findings first. So, firstly, we broke down all the stories by topic because we were also curious to see which topics led newscasts, and what we discovered was that. I don't think surprisingly, but what we discovered was that half of the stories were about crime. Next down on the list, I'm only going to list a few. Next down on the list was weather. And third, on, I'm sorry, and weather had uh, about 15% of of the stories that, that led newscasts. The third most popular topic was public affairs. So in fact, whereas I'm sure most people would expect that public affairs would be the most popular topic for a late-night newscast. It was indeed crime, then weather, then public affairs, with about 10% of the stories, and then a smattering of other topics uh, that were much smaller in percentage followed behind that, including on occasion sports and education and some crashes, car crashes. So we noticed that that, that was the the order of things. And then we looked at, as I said, gender, race, and age. So with gender, we did see about a 50-50 split, male to female, males being just a little more represented in in these newscasts than, than females for lead stories. So we had about 52% for men, or at least people who appear to be men, 43% for women. And there was about a 5%. Uh, we, we don't know because we couldn't see or, or there were more than one, there was more than one uh, reporter in the story. And so we considered that not, not something we would count. With race, we found close to 70%, 69.3% of the reporters appeared to be white. 25% of reporters leading the newscast appeared to be journalists of color. And we had about a, a 6%, 5.7% that we, we couldn't identify because they weren't on camera. Or again, there may have been pluralities in, in the reporting numbers, and we didn't include those. So about 70% to 25% white to journalist of color. And then with age, actually pretty similar numbers. We had 71% 
of the reporters appeared to be under the age of 40 and 23% over the age of 40, and we had 6% that we couldn't identify or didn't identify. So similar numbers, actually. But I think you're also asking me to point out to you the, the results in terms of combining gender, age, race, and topic, because what we did find that was unusual or unexpected is that because weather was such a prominent topic discussed in lead stories in local news, which is perhaps unusual in and of itself and not something that we have done for a very long time, but absolutely something we've been doing the last several years, we have a strange result, which is to say that we have lots of weather, but that weather for late-night newscasts appears to be heavily represented by older white men. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think so. Yeah. Because you, you certainly see younger women at other times of the day. But then again, you also see a lot of uh, older white men who are the main meteorologist or main weathermen of the uh, whatever the particular station is. So it would seem. It would seem well interesting. So the, <laughs> the news well, and see maybe the newsroom. It's like it's it's so, so funny because you can if you sort of take apart the the thought process. Well, we need to be more diverse. We need to have. You know, more men. We need to have a, a divide our stories up evenly between men and women. We need to have younger people and older people. We need to have people of color, you know, but to balance the um, the, the lead story, et cetera. But we also need to have weather in there. And the the weather person everybody trusts for the weather is is old Bill here because he's been around for a long time. So mm-hmm. it's like the th- the thinking is there. You see evidence of it, but it's not maybe universal across uh, all segments of the newsroom. Well, that's what it would seem. So, you know, I, I'm I'm certainly not suggesting that those efforts aren't there to put more journalists of color into important places in the newsroom. But that intention aside, or that good thought aside, the evidence here suggests that there's at least one topic that's not being the efforts not being made in that direction, which is to say that weather seems to be not particularly diverse in terms of age and and race and gender, which I wasn't expecting. We weren't expecting, but nevertheless, that's what we have. So I guess my argument is if, if we're going to prioritize weather and we're going to prioritize diversity to, to find choices, then we also need to recognize that we don't have that diversity in weather reporting, at least not for late night news across these top markets. And if, as Walter Lippmann pointed out, the news is our window into our communities, then it's important that we make that change happen. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we did a podcast about a year ago about, oh gosh, what was it? It was in um, in rural Kentucky uh, about you know, in the follow-up of the election and whether the, you know, how, where people were getting their news and how they were represented in local news and, you know, both politically but also culturally. And mm-hmm. um, one of the, th- the things that came out of that was is that people, by and large, they, they didn't trust, like, cable news, but they really valued their local news. And they didn't always see people 
who were representative of them on their local news, whether they were white or whether they were uh, someone of color. They didn't see somebody who's maybe speaking to them. But that spot in the news hierarchy, the local news, is really important to people. So, you know, it's important. The spot, the the lead story, you mean? No, I just no, I just meant in, in or the, local news in general. In, well, in in news consumption in general, I think people give a lot mm. of credit. You know, I've I you know I don't trust you know these big newspapers. I don't trust cable news, but right. I do. I you know I do trust my local news station. So then it becomes really kind of important to your point of Mr. Lipman's point that you know the the local news is the TV news reflect who the community is, and that is is you know, certainly fits in all the demographics is, you know, the age, gender, and mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and race. And one would think that you would trust somebody who was more like you delivering the news than somebody else. Uh, it's possible. I mean, I, that's not definitely not an area of, uh, of research that I've given uh, <laughs> a lot of time to, so I, I can't speak to it too, in, sure. too intelligent. I can say that Pew Data has supported over and over again that that people do trust their local news more than they do any other type of news and they have very reasonable high expectations for their local media organizations to do right by their communities yeah and i do think that i do think that part of doing right by the community is employing a variety of of voices a variety of backgrounds, of appearances, of abilities, of perhaps uh, nationalities of origin. I mean, really, any any number of categories would do. I just didn't have a way to, I mean, I didn't even look, for example, at religious garb. I didn't, there was really no point to, to my knowledge. There was no one, nothing stood out for us as, oh, somebody is wearing a hijab or, or a a yarmulke or something like that. So we didn't even go there. We didn't go in the direction of ability. I didn't notice anyone who used a wheelchair or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, representations uh, in general tend to be pretty bland in, right. in local news. And uh, I feel like this study supported that belief, which is a little disappointing because obviously the the conversation has been around how we have these desires to to make now actually I'm going to cut myself off only because I want to make the point that I really did only look at lead right. stories and and for all I know the rest of the newscast was a, a you know a celebration of diversity and not the not the lead story but I think that's rather the point that if if it is still true that a newscast in stacked in linear time, I'm, I'm a former producer, so I'm going to make the statement that this is true, that a television newscast stacked in linear time, that that's significant, that you're making the decision that the first story of the newscast is the one that you want everyone to pay attention to, and then you just, you you know, we, we use our excellent producing skills to convince you to stick around, but we understand that you might not pass the first story. Right. Then we're we're basically saying this is the one you need to hear or see or think about. And if you don't get to the rest or if you go somewhere else for the rest, so be it. So Yeah, you the, the goal yeah. is tends not to be to bore somebody at the beginning. 
You want it would to, be nice. Yeah. You want to <laughs> entice them to get get through the rest of it. In those first few minutes, they they do sort of set the set the table for for what's supposed to come. They set the tone and and sort of, you know it's valid to, to, to look at those first few minutes and sort of make a, some judgments because that's also, it's not so much, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's like, it's reflective of what the, where the producers and, and the person who does all the hiring, where their thinking is, uh, yeah. as far as the news, what they see is important and how they want their, you know, this is, this is our newscast this is what I've been working all day to, to produce. This is what I think is the most important. This is what I want to best represent the message that we're trying to put out there. Now, the, yeah. the other thing we didn't talk about that, that I found kind of fascinating was the actual, how you did this. Uh, you used a program, um, or, or system, I guess you didn't go around and turn on TVs all around. You didn't fly around the country and turn on TVs. You, you actually had a, a program that, that did this for you in, in a sense. Can you sort of talk about that and maybe how other people well, could had, use it? I had a, I had a human who did it for me, but, uh, I had a program that was easier for, for that human to do the, the work, which is, you know, usually uh, in this, in this part of the business and the academic side, when you want to analyze news content for TV, there's a reason why print gets so much attention when it comes to, to academic research. It's, it's easy to go on a, we'll say now a website, but it's easy to access the printed word. It was by design much more difficult. Well, I don't know why I say by design, but it was much more difficult in the recent past to collect enough videos for any kind of legitimate scholarship in this field, and mainly you needed to be able to record the newscasts um, or the individual stories, and you had to be in those markets in order to get those videos or request them or get funding to pay for somebody to collect them for you. And now, gloriously, thank you, Internet, there are a number of programs, but I used one called TVIs, which, you know, is, is fairly well-known in the industry and is more commonly used for companies that produce advertising for them to check up like media buyers so that they can check up on the product and see how their clients are represented on television. Basically what it is is a DVR in every market, every Nielsen market in the country, just constantly recording 24-7 and Throwing into a uh, repository at 30 days at a time, so every every 30 days it lapses, but it holds on to these videos and the transcriptions to this if they exist to the newscasts, so that you can search by topic, you can search uh, by keyword, you can you can search by date, and then you can clip out the videos and download them, which is an excellent opportunity for research. I know it's also used for programs like. Um, the Daily Show and uh, Stephen Colbert and all those types of programs, they'll, they'll make use of the same. I don't know if they use TVIs per se, but they use something similar. So, yeah, I, I, I lucked out. I happened to discover that this program exists, and I approached them and happened to approach them at a, at a convenient time because they were looking to make friends with, uh, with universities. They realized they had... Uh, a nice product that could help with research, and they were looking to cut universities a really good deal and not <laughs> charge us what they charge advertisers, which is fine. I was very happy to hear that. I don't think I could have made it work otherwise, but uh, my my university was 
kind enough to cut the check on my behalf, and uh, and I've been madly downloading news clips ever since, as long as I, you know, don't use it for financial gain. It's it's an agreement we have. So what are the things that could you see something like this being useful for? What other type of research do you think? I mean, content analyses in general, I think, are, are where where this product is, is helpful. I, I personally like the idea of, instead of just going market to market, I really like the idea of stepping back and looking at news from a distance uh, and being able to, to make comparative observations uh, across markets, between markets, um, across companies. I think that now that we have increasingly consolidated ownership, I'm using all kinds of all kinds of economic terms. Um, conglomerated uh, organizations now, uh, all of the you know the Sinclairs and the Nexstars, and as they're buying up organizations, uh, individual in individual markets, I think you could use products like this to observe. You know, is there some kind of similarity between their stations, or is it just sort the ownership in name only, but there's no influence on the content? Yeah. I doubt that. But, so, some yeah. sort of homogenization of, of content. Now, but but we did, have, apparently, maybe there was some type of program like this that we had evidence of not too long ago when suddenly a whole string of um, TV stations that were owned by the same conglomerate um, read sort of the same type of editorial um, yep. railing <laughs> against fake news. So, yep, I may have mentioned that station <laughs> a moment ago, or company rather. Yeah, no, um, but it, it's 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 interesting because it's like, yeah, they're going to go ahead and do that because who's going to know that this station over here is going to say the exact same thing or follow the same thing? Mm. But but it's you know we're in an environment now where where everybody's watching, and sometimes the things uh, it's not just research that you have the ability to go out and and monitor other other types of content and and call people out when they may be doing something questionable, mm-hmm. ethically speaking. Um, so you don't just do research; you also teach at at Syracuse. Are is it are you you're teaching in the broadcast? Uh, side of the- I'm on the broadcast and digital journalism faculty. Yes. So, I teach at the New House School. So, you know, I I came out of I came out of um, American University's interactive journalism program. I I taught a podcasting class this year. I'm going to teach it again in the winter. Mm-hmm. So for me, like teaching is a is a pretty new thing. But you know, sitting in this chair doing this podcast, I've had the opportunity to talk to lots of educators about sort of where journalism education is at. Hmm. How do you feel about where sort of journalism journalism education is at, at least maybe from a, a broadcast standpoint? Hmm. Are, are we meeting? Me, are we meeting me, the needs of of the are students? Are we meeting the needs for whom? Oh, yeah, uh, exactly. The students. the students for the industry is the industry helping us enough? You know. So what's tricky right now, I think, is that, and this is, I guess, the needs for everybody. In the audience, students, teachers included, is that uh, for a really long time, broadcast or journalism professors in general, I don't have to isolate it to broadcasting, enjoyed, I'm going to call it a convenience, but it, I don't mean it to sound quite as crabby as maybe it will, but a it was a, a privilege, a convenience that the industry didn't change all that much for many decades. There was a, a standard 
professionalism, a standard requirement for doing the job well. And it didn't change for a long time. And so the teaching tended to follow industry. Industry made decisions, and then the teaching followed those decisions to ensure that the next generations of, of journalists met their standards. What's changed now is that I, I'm seeing more and more of a need for professors to innovate and for students to innovate. And that is a challenge because it's, it's changing our, I don't want to say business model because that's not how we see ourselves, but it's, but it's changing our teaching model to where we are giving advice to the professionals based on what we come up with in our creative work inside our student newsrooms. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard work. It's important, but it's hard work. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, having had the opportunity to talk to lots of different people in their sort of their careers, you're talking to many people who came who came out of J school recently, and coming out and feeling like they didn't necessarily have the skills that they needed to get a job. And the challenge of that, the challenge of teachers trying to understand what skills they needed to teach to prepare the students. But you know, mm-hmm. also I'm beginning to see a lot of these programs. You know, maybe this is something you were talking about that. That you know, like game design, and and you know, there's a American University has a, a visiting professor on comedy. So, mm-hmm. d- different types of ideas to sort of, hey, this is a podcasting class. Uh, <laughs> trying to latch onto something, I don't know, to specialize or to you know bring something different to the students to sort of fill out the degree. On the other hand, I, I was at a conference and and I heard a program head said to me, I I feel like I'm going to have to throw out my curriculum. You know, just in, you probably do if in frustration yeah. with the things they were hearing and they're going on. So I don't know what this all means. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't Would know. you like? I, I, you want me to decide? No, I didn't. Yeah, I, didn't, I wasn't sure where I was going to take this. I, I don't think you. Yeah, I'm, you know, Syracuse is a very, very important u- university in journalism. I didn't agreed. Agreed. I didn't. I'm not going to you to to get an answer to to the solution to all this. It's just you know maybe just remarking. Huh. This is kind of an, like everything else. These are interesting times, and it, and you know for an industry that's continues to be in a degree of turmoil. I guess it's not too unexpected to to think that maybe the educational aspect of it or the related educational aspect of it might be facing its own challenges as well, I guess. I don't mm. know. It is. It's challenging. No, no, you're right, though. We are facing a, a challenge. We have, I mean, just the challenge I, I listed that we, we have. A, we're at a crossroads. We're trying to decide whether we maintain a status quo or we shake things up. I, I don't even know that it's a decision, to be honest with you. I think it's not a choice. Yeah. I mean, the, cho- the choice is do or die. So I, I don't see it as a choice. I also don't see it as a bad thing. I mean, maybe it's because I'm what would be called an exennial, right? I'm kind of on that cusp of millennial and, and Gen X. And so I'm told from the few articles I've read on that generation online that we have a tendency to feel comfortable with innovation, more like millennials who, who do the same. Just this, you know, it's, it's just not that panic inducing for me. It doesn't bother me. I'm happy to take ideas from students and see what we can, what great things we can do with their excellent ideas. I'm, I'm happy to help our students understand that the industry 
is all about meeting the audience where they are. And that, that's different. That's different than it used to be. We used to tell people what they needed to know, and we were the experts alone, and you sit, and I talk, and you listen, and it's one way, and one to many, mass calm, as it were. And that's fine. It changed, right? Like, I, that doesn't yeah. bother me. If it bothers other people, I sympathize, but I, but I, don't, I don't feel that way. And so it, it just didn't, it didn't strike me as such a terrifying prospect that, that we just change up. I, first of all, or maybe not first of all, tenth of all, since we've made long lists now, <laughs> it's, not different, it's not different in other parts of teaching. Teaching itself has changed. University experience has changed in recent years. The digital disruption touched everything. Yeah. It didn't just touch didn't just touch television news. It didn't just touch online news or print news or whatever you want to call it. It it touched everything, including academia. And professors are actively seeking ways to engage their students differently. We're flipping classrooms. That's a that's a common term now, and that's not just in the university setting, but in high schools and in elementary, middle, all the way through. Flipping classrooms, so it's not the sage on the stage anymore. We have a partnership with our students. We're still the professionals. We're still the experts. They still defer to us as the final word, but we work together. And I think that uh, it, it doesn't strike me as, as scary or unusual because I'm pretty well used to it at this point. But I would imagine that that's not how it feels if you came up in a different age of this process. Well, I'm a, I'm a baby, baby boomer and I'm in full panic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Like I said, I sympathize. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, but it's not going to change. yourself in because this is happening. It's not going to change <laughs> anything. No, and I'm not in a in a full panic. I think I welcome the change. I welcome the innovation. I'm not scared of millennials because uh, a lot of times the millennials in the office are the ones that have the best ideas. Agreed. And, and the most energy. Certainly, I know I'm tired. <laughs> I've run out of ideas. Get out of the way, old man. Um, they say, but we'll get you a lawn and a rocking yeah, chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as long as I have a microphone. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> but I think change, innovation. Uh, I think it, it, this is exciting times. I remember I, it's been a while since I told this on the podcast. When I was at the Connection newspapers, and we would have we would get interns in, and I had these two high school interns who came in, and I was in, in the middle of the my program at American University as a student, and I was really supercharged about what was going on in the industry and about change, et cetera, et cetera. And I turned to the two of them and I said, I'm so jealous of you. You're coming into the industry right at this great time. Everything is changing. And they mm. both had these looks of panic on their face. <laughs> they said, what, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> they just wanted to have their paper. They wanted to have their picture on a, on a newspaper next to their story. And I get that. But, you know, I think, you know, People's expectations, I mean, you know, my, my, we're sitting here talking about education and college and everything. In the back of my mind, I'm sitting here thinking the school I went to, the journalism school I went to, no longer exists because it sort of morphed into something else, became part of the arts and the liberal arts college and was no longer a standalone journalism school. Because I, I think probably because people weren't coming to get journalism, people were get, coming to get whatever this thing is that we're doing right now that... That, uh, that I have my podcast named after, but it's all journalism. That's the whole point of it. But yeah. anyway, uh, okay. Well, now I'm all, I'm all, I'm all a flutter. I'm all, I don't know. Uh, You're all amped uh, up. I'm all amped Listen, up. My, my 
my biggest, my, honestly, my one of my biggest worries for my students is that, they, you know, they all come in with exactly what you're describing, which is this amazing energy and idealism and, and all the great things that you want out of future journalists. And my, my worry is that they will enter into this business and, and work for a company that doesn't care and kind of crushes their dreams by McDonaldizing yeah. the process and and then they feel like they're flipping burgers instead of making wonderful, you know, filet mignon or whatever. So if there yeah. was money it's, enough to keep them survi- keep them surviving, um, but there's also opportunity for them to create their own product or to, to create their own you know, platforms to tell stories to, I think it's more so than I think than when I was in school, I think, you know, it behooves the the student to really control their career. Mm. Think about what they're doing. You know, maybe I was just a poor student, but uh, (laughs) I didn't really think about my future, but the idea, you know, just taking, taking, you know, grabbing your, your career, your, you know, journalism, journalist ideals, by the hands and, and and making decisions about how to move forward and not just putting up with some boring, stupid corporate job and, mm-hmm. and eventually going into marketing or, or leaving journalism altogether because you're discouraged. I don't know. What well, about? it's why I like, uh, it's why I like spying on these industries, right? It's, <laughs> or this one industry. I, I like, I like spying on these stations for that reason. Okay. I think that they, that, that it allows me to keep tabs on which, which stations, which markets, which companies are are doing what I what I would call good work, and then I take that information back to the classroom with me, and I impart that wisdom on my students. That's something else that's that's changed in the teaching process, even in the few years that I've been doing it here at uh, at Syracuse. That uh, we used to we used to tell people by market size or ranges of market sizes where they ought to begin. And I find myself more and more talking about companies. I just think it would be irresponsible to leave that part out. So we talk about companies and what they seem to be working on. Wherever we have connections, we get representatives from the different companies to talk to us about where they're investing their money, uh, what kind of projects they're they're working on, uh, if they can divulge that. Uh, and, you know, each one's a little bit different. Each one is focusing on something else. Some are more storytelling focused. Some are more digital focused, digitally focused. Some are looking to buy a bunch of stations, <laughs> and, and that's a different focus uh, and, and results in a different kind of product. You know, it's, it's, it's important to talk to students about the fact that this industry is still shifting it's moved a lot in the last 20 years in particular. Yeah. And every time the FCC passes a new law or undoes a law or makes a new policy, um, it, it, it changes the the nature of the business they're looking to go into. So in the four years that, uh, that you know, these this 2018 class spent in, in college, a, a ton change yeah. uh, in, in in the day to day work and the in what who owns which station. I mean everything changes so quickly. Uh, so we try our best as as professors to keep on top of what that is. And, and part of that is my my research. I I like to to use it to be helpful to the students, and I present to them as much as I can without 
trying to bore them too much with academic research, uh, which I, I'm finding they're actually not bored by and really are very appreciative of, of uh, the fact that I'm keeping tabs on all these companies that I can make pretty decent recommendations based on their individual presentation style and preferences. Yeah, I like, yeah. I, I like the idea that, that basically a lot of the old models are just gone or, or they just don't apply anymore. And as things change, opportunities arise. And, and so then it becomes, a, you know, it becomes important to, you know, understand that, okay, change is going to be, constant change is going to be a part of this process. And that's where innovation, mm. innovation comes in. If you, you need to be innovative, you need to be adaptable so that you can sort of jump on this, this crazy ride and, and, and see where it takes you. If you're looking for something comforting, uh, something very sort of, you know, this is the box. I'm Reliable. Gonna, yeah, exactly. This is probably not the career that to, to go into. Can I tell them ultimately your services to your viewer. Yeah. That's our mantra, right? Your services to your viewer, whatever they want. The mission hasn't really changed. And I think in many ways the, the mission is even more important, uh, you know, informing the viewer, knowing who your audience is. And I think you said it, meeting them where they are. You know, if you can do all those things, you're you're going to be you're in in great shape. I don't know if you, you're a well-paying job, but you're probably going to be a lot more satisfied with the work that you're doing. Karen, this has been great. We could probably talk for another two hours about this. It hasn't been two hours without but, question. <laughs> but uh, well, let's stay in touch. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. Would you like to find out more about our podcast? Why not sign up for our email newsletter that comes out every week? Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to sign up. Do you want to know a secret? It's All Journalism is working on a special project, which we will be revealing in the coming weeks. If you'd like to get some behind-the-scenes information, some exclusive content, then go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to our Patreon campaign. The only way you'll be able to access this exclusive content is to sign up and support our podcast through our Patreon campaign. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism, and here they are. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter provided web support and research. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. 
This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.